Since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, ordinary citizens and public officials alike have resisted new industrial technology as a threat to jobs. Familiar ways of producing and consuming remain popular, especially when jobs and livelihoods are at stake. The Western world's most recent reckoning with this familiar phenomenon involves circuits, wires, and networks smart enough to take on repetitive tasks with fewer errors. The next stage of this process appears to be Robotics as a Service, or RAS. RAS companies don't just provide robots. They work with clients to figure out how to integrate the technology in ways that boost productivity rather than just replace human workers. This sounds like a great idea, and it probably is. At the same time, it raises the old fears about the end of work as more jobs or tasks within jobs are automated, thus reducing the demand for human labor. How big a challenge does this really present? Today, a pioneer and expert in robots as a service, Clinton Smith, joins us on Hardly Working to explain how his RAS company, Rios AI, does its work and how employers and employees can prepare for the inevitable shocks this technology and business process redesign will create. Clinton founded his company with the goal of reindustrializing America. Today, we'll see how RAS companies are changing American work and discuss how American workers can prepare. Clinton Smith, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Brent, great to be here. Great to meet you. And I guess follow on the previous conversation that we had, but was very engaging. So I'm looking forward to more on that. Yeah, same. Doing some very, very interesting work, and it bears directly on kind of the core things that our team at, at AEI, the vocation, career, and work team, are interested in because automation is a process that never stops. It hasn't stopped for hundreds of years. It's always, always happening, and it feels like we're in a phase where it's going to be picking up pace again. And I thought it'd be helpful if we had a conversation because you are actively doing this work. And and I had run across Rios and some other research, and then you and I had a previous conversation. So this is the real deal. Now you have to tell us and tell the world about yourself, about Rios, about uh, how you do what you do and why you do it. So let's start with you. I always like to give guests a chance to talk about not just what they do, but why they do it. You know, what drew you into your field? Was this your life's plan from the time you were cognizant that you needed to have a plan? Or did this evolve in ways that you didn't expect? Yeah, no, thank you. And I, I will confess that I did listen to a number of your previous podcast episodes to get a good feel for the, mm-hmm. the vibe. And uh, I guess I'll also give an endorsement of it. I, I found them to be uh, quite good. But in that bent, I guess, early on, I had a an interest in, I guess, computers and technology. And then it's also kind of hard to separate, again, and in, in some of your um, earlier ones, you talk about like, social capital and social, you know, credit, these kinds of things, like how people make their way in life, that kind of thing. And, and that kind of dovetails with my life story. So I figured I would bring it up given the bent of yeah, your, please do. your uh, podcast. So I'm the child of divorced parents. My parents divorced when I was in grammar school and I was, my sister and I were more or less effectively raised by a single mom plus like, you know, our extended family. And I went to high school, a private high school on uh, like a effectively scholarship. And I, you know, from an early age in my teenage years, I knew I would have to like work. And then so I 
being interested in computers at the time, I, you know, got into like IT jobs to basically help support my, you know, to support the family, et cetera. And that got me interested into, you know, okay, now I'm getting to, you know, looking at colleges. I really want to understand how these things called computer computers work from a fundamental level. And so I ended up going to Georgia Tech, majored in computer engineering. And that, you know, that coursework there covered everything from semiconductor physics all the way up to like compiler programming. So I really got a, you know, proper understanding so of that. Were you from, are you from Georgia or were you? New Orleans. I, I grew up in New Orleans. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then in the spirit of the, uh, you know, paying for things through, that's how I got into co-oping. And so uh, Georgia Tech has a very strong co-op program. So it allowed me to go through my schooling while minimizing debt on the combination of like, you know, working and, and some scholarships that Georgia Tech had offered. And then so my time at JPL, I got to do amazing stuff. And there I was exposed to lasers and optics. And so that that is what got me going to towards the electrical engineering degree. Again, this sort of curiosity driven mm -hmm. mixed with like the need to pay bills, if you sure, will, sure. Uh, kind, kind of a, yeah, kind that's, of that's true for everybody. Or yeah, should, right. <laughs> we, we want it to be true for everybody. We don't want it always to be just about the economic calculus, yeah. but yeah. economics yeah. is important. So I, I got to, you know, for example, work at the Keck Interferometer at the top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii, which is super cool, you know, as an undergrad working on instrumentation there. And anyway, that inspired me to go for a PhD in electrical engineering. I think, frankly, on the strength of my work at JPL, because I was a bit non-traditional, I am and somehow JPL got into the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Yes, yes, okay. NASA's Jet yeah. Propulsion Laboratory. Yeah. Okay. So, for example, I um, I wasn't involved in it, but you know they do all these tours, and you learn about technology at JPL when you're there as a student. And so I was able to see some of the, I think it was Curiosity, either Curiosity or one of those rovers in the high bay in the years before it was actually sent up to Mars. So that's, you know, kind of cool. Um, that's very cool. Anyway, so I got into Princeton, did my PhD in laser spectroscopy. And then so lasers and optics. And then that kind of got me involved in um, doing very highly multidisciplinary technology development. And so the application there was around trace gas spectroscopy, i.e. measuring, um, in this case, it was CO2, you know, for, for climate change, uh, global warming, that kind of thing. Measuring CO2 very precisely, building like laser spectrometers for that. And so one, I guess one of the things around like this path is that when you do your PhD, you really have to learn, like no one has an answer for you. you you're figuring it out because you're on that, you're literally on the cutting edge, you're on that front edge of technology and you have to, basically a PhD is learning how to do things when no one knows the answer, right? And how do you mm -hmm. get the right answer when no one knows the answer, if you will. I think that's probably the best definition yeah. of PhD I've ever heard. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, regardless of the field, frankly, I think that is probably it yeah. can be encapsulated there. Um, so I, then after I, that, I, oh, I don't have a PhD. I I consume all the things that you guys put together, with the PhDs put together. That is, I've found my my niche in life doing that. But I really admire people who are actually doing original research. It's it's really an amazing process. Yeah, it's hard. And at some level, I backed off a little bit from that because I didn't go the academic route. I went the industry route. That's the classic existential question that people in grad school usually ask themselves. So I went to work for a defense contractor outside of Boston after that, again, doing a bunch of the same stuff, laser spectroscopy. And then from there, we moved out to the Bay. My wife and I moved out to the Bay Area and I started working at Xerox Park. And so that's, I think I would say that was when I like started transitioning more toward like 
working on my own on projects towards like team-based building of, of projects. And so that's kind of like an evolution, if you will, of sort of how, how did I get to where I'm getting, you know, in terms of like working with these teams and all, and all that kind of stuff. I, I figured you're going to want to ask about Rios and all that at some point. But yeah, yeah, we'll get, to, we'll get to Rios, yeah. but I want to, I want yeah. people to understand a little bit about you first. Okay, so you're at Xerox Park and you're working there and then you decided, I, I want to go into business. Uh, I want to start something. A lot of people who go to Silicon Valley, that's why they go there, is that it's a, yep. a place to start things. Um, yes. <laughs> all the venture capitalists are there. Everybody's, you know, hanging out, looking for the next uh, important, profitable opportunity. So what was that like? What was the shift to, like, going out on your own? Yeah, no, it was, well, I'll say terrifying and exciting same time right and it remains at, at some levels that way if you um, if you ask any yeah. psychologist they will tell you that it's the same centers of the brain brain yeah that experience anxiety <laughs> and excitement and it's just a matter of how you label them so, yeah how do you label them yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah so i um at, at park i was doing some very cool work you know i, I was both at the prior company and before I, you know, I was writing like these proposals for government grants. So at, at the prior company, uh, before Park, it was PSI, it was SBIR as we were writing. And then Park is was larger, it was like, you know, DOE grants. So like ARPA-E, DARPA, IARPA, these kinds of things. And so I got a lot of experience in that process, kind of building out a, almost like a business plan from scratch, right? Because you have to do that as part of these government proposals. It's not exactly the same thing, right? Because you're not directly ta tackling a market. It's more like, how are you going to build this tech? How are you going to manage your resources? You know, how are you going to answer these questions? These kinds of things. And then kind of simultaneously, and actually the reason why I ended up at Park, when I wanted to go West, my co-founder, the CEO of Rios, Bernard Cass, he had I actually met him at my first job out of college. We shared cubes together, right? We were mm -hmm. cube mates. And uh, he, he was further on in his career and he was actually recruited to go be a, like a basically an area manager at Park. And then so when I wanted to go west, you know, to, to go and make things or whatever, I, I kind of, you know, reached out to everyone I knew. Turns out there was a position at Park Open that was a good fit. And then so I got there. He then actually left and spun out from Park company that built radars for self-driving cars. But I stayed at Park because I was, you know, doing my own thing, if you will, in terms of building technology. So I was building like distributed methane sensing, was doing like like indoor air detection, like a lot of like IoT, you know, kind of like distributed sensing and, and deploying of, of, of these systems. About, let's see, when I was there for about three years, I guess at this time, Bernard was looking at, you know, what's what's fabricate these radars, right? And so he was touring manufacturing facilities and he was shocked at how much manual labor there still was at these facilities. Mm. Just completely, it, you know, and so that was his entree into that. And then sometime later, he ended up leaving that startup because he had a difference of like direction with the CEO and he went and became what's called an entrepreneur at residence at one of their VC funds. Okay. And, and really use that inspiration to dive into mm you know, really the, the manual penetration of the labor market, opportunity for robotics, what are the technologies that are missing? How large is the market? Turns out it's around 1 trillion a year, according to McKinsey. And then, so at that point, I was actually separately working on an internal Xerox kind of initiative. There's all these like various research projects going on at Park, excuse me, uh, not Xerox, but Park. And this one was around like haptics and like from the frame of like AR and VR and like, you know, like manipulation that way. And there was actually some, um, 
he had reached out to me about co-founding this company with him. And, and the thesis was for robotics to really make that next wave of penetration into, into like manufacturing writ large, robots have to be, have better dexterity. They need to be able to handle unstructured environments. And part of that thesis was around them having a sense of touch. Yeah. And then, so we actually created the company with the purpose of like basically building robotic fingers that had a sense of touch. And we did, and, and we built those, sold a couple of them, but yeah, I mean, we have patents on them and everything, but they, they, uh, you know, they're effectively just as good as your fingers in terms of like the haptic perception. And so it was the, yeah. Bernard, your friend Bernard's, he was basically employed as a, within this venture capital firm, as somebody who was doing investigation, trying to create something, they were supporting him in that. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Well, many VC funds in Silicon Valley have a kind of a carve out role. They don't really like, it's more just use their resources, this kind of thing where, the idea is an entrepreneur wants to start something, uh -huh. gives them a little bit of like, usually it's like six or nine months to sort out their business plan, you know, what all that stuff is. And then, okay, go raise mm -hmm. that, that that's a pretty common thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you guys got together and you built a couple prototypes. It sounds like of the technology. Correct. Then what happened? Yeah. Then what happened? Yeah. A few things happened. Well, COVID <laughs> happened, for example, <laughs> a number of things happened. So we, uh, yeah. So, we, we built some prototypes of the technology and, and it's kind of when you want to engage, I don't know, with anybody, even if you're a consumer, if somebody wants to sell you something, right, they, they've got to like have something, you know, they can't just sell you a PowerPoint, right? if you will, right? Well, so, I, I that, think you well, can sell a PowerPoint, I've heard <laughs> that, uh, but I think it's better if you don't sell the PowerPoint. Yeah, it's better, it's typically better if you don't, it's a little harder to do, yeah. So anyway, you know, we started, you know, exploring, now that we had this tech, which, you know, still is, I, by my estimate, some of the best like haptics technology on the planet. We, we started really like engaging and that took us about a year or two to do that. And it wasn't just the two of us at that point. We were seven, six or seven of us. Um, so a, a few others came from Park and then a few other just from our own network. You know, we I just wanted to find for yeah. listeners, you, you keep saying haptics. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Haptics is a sense of touch. So okay. All of our fingers have mechanoreceptors in them. So whenever you like, if you like, you know, slide your hand against a surface, if it's rough or something, it's right. how you know that it's rough. Okay. Um, if, okay. if somebody is like, you know, taking, if when you hold a glass in your hand, you know that the mm -hmm. gravity of the glass, like pulling down in your hand, mm -hmm. you can kind of feel it. Right. You know, that's, that's again, haptics, right? You can okay. feel that sheer stress on your Okay. So that, that's the, yeah. the big innovation here is creating technology that is able to, I don't know, feel is the right word, but it, it, it has a way of measuring Correct. texture and weight and so on. Yeah. Correct. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then, so we went that, we went and then we shopped this, you know, again, here, here's this technology that we think is going to be groundbreaking. Let's start engaging with customers. And, and we were looking at like gripper manufacturers. We even looking at end consumers. And we actually realized that most gripper manufacturers just, how shall I say this? With the, at, with the increasing introduction of like AI and a lot of the electronics advances, there's a bit of a sea change going on right now. And then so what we realized is that we actually built something that couldn't be really used by gripper manufacturers, generally speaking, just because it was too forward. And then so we decided to go 
direct to consumer, if you will, i.e. The, the businesses that would that would have this need for automation. And then that was a little bit of a pivot on our end because from a business side of things, because now you go from being more components focused to more systems focused. And that is basically where we, are, we have been now for like the last three years is building these holistic work cells that perform a task. So hand-eye coordination. So we built out an entire technology stack around, you know, machine vision using, um, you know, deep learning techniques to understand where the objects that are being manipulated, how are grasp points. These are all things that like we as people take, we don't even think about, right? Um, I have a small son. I'm watching him figure it out in, right. in real time right now, right? He's, he's just over one at this point. But um, all that needs to be, you know, kind of at some level replicated within robotics right now. And that's really what we're witnessing going mm. on. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty amazing. Okay. So <clears throat> who was your first customer? Our first customer is this, uh, we, we have a case study with them, is a company called Hit uh, Promo. They're the number one supplier of promotional products in the US. So actually AEI might be a customer of them. If you go to like an AEI conference <laughs> yeah. and there's like these mugs or pins or, or whatever, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, anytime you go to a conference or somewhere and there's like some customized keychain or like drink or mug mm -hmm. is the classic one. There's a high probability that you're, your employer went, went through them. And so we have uh, over time automating more and more of their facilities with our technology. Which aspects of their operation, I should say, were sort of touched by the product? What did you have, yeah. what, what specifically did they do? Yeah, so, yeah, so they, I mean, so their main, I mean, when you, when you order from them, you, you're ordering like some product that's getting customized. Usually it's a custom label or print or something. And so the uh, first thing that we automated there was actually what's called end of line pack. And so the way I can best describe this for, you know, the layperson is like, anytime you order something on the internet and it shows up in the box and there's stuff in there, a human being put the stuff in there. That is called end of line pack. Okay. So we automated that side of things. Like whenever you, um, man, it's all over the economy. So whenever you like buy anything, oftentimes there's a, like a little plastic bag around it. Either it's a piece of clothing or even like the small finger carrots at the grocery store, whatever, right? I mean, that's what's called like a poly bag, basically. Mm -hmm. and so there's an entire, there's, there, there's a suite of machinery that will do that. And depending on the type of product, oftentimes it's a human being that's actually placing the object into, into those bags or into the boxes, depending. And so that was our first use case for, for, for Hipromo that we automated was one of their end of line pack lines that, and the challenge with that one was that, and again, this now, now we're blending back into this AI and, and automation challenge. Like why, you know, you can find a bunch of videos of traditional automation where you've got these like conveyors or whatever, and they're just dumping things, you know, one after another, one after another, and it goes on forever. The issue is that there's only so much of the economy that is that mass produced, but a lot of the economy, especially as we're getting into more of this customization world, you have mixed skew. It's a mixed skew situation. So a skew is like an individual type of a product, which has its own dimensions or whatever. And so when that happens, these traditional ways of automating they break, right? Because they are all what are called, they're basically hard programmed, i.e. that is whoever is programming the robot, it's saying, okay, go from this position to this position, to this position, 
and rinse and repeat forever, right? right? And then right. so if anything changes, right, positionally it breaks, right? Mm -hmm. And then so what we did with this particular one is we used computer vision to just look at the products coming in and then know when to pack them. And then so effectively, uh, and this is on our website, you can see some videos, www.rios.ai to yeah. plug ourselves. But um, what effectively what happens is a person can dump like a bin of parts into the machine. It'll figure out which, you know, what the parts are and then just singulate them. So that was our first use case. And then we did, uh, also we did a like machine tending. So we'll actually automate the, the process of like tending a machine. So again, it's many times even automation equipment requires a person to sit on a stool at it and like push buttons or watch it or futz with it or something like that. We can automate that depending on the use case. So we did that for them. And another thing that we do as a part of that is, and this is something that human beings tend to implicitly do is informal quality control. I.e. humans do the informal quality control. They'll look at it and they'll maybe right. like fix something and move on. The irony of that is that like the, when workers do that, Yes, they're doing something that they think is good for the the employer. They're like fixing it in the moment, but they're not. But oftentimes the management doesn't know that they're doing it, and then so now there's this like inefficiency in the process, which is actually a source of you know an erosion of their margins if you think about it. That should be fixed, and so there, that communication never occurs. And so that is actually one of the things that we'll do is we'll do neural net or deep learning based quality control of our processes. And then that, of course, builds the usual analytics and data that allows for business intelligence for some upstream process automation, that kind of thing. So that's another example. Of so a, a, a worker would see a flaw in a product, the paint's not right, or there's a chip in something and they just set it aside. Yeah. And, and that doesn't get reported. Sometimes it, uh, not. Yeah, it, yeah, it just depends it on- It may the, or may not get reported. Yeah. Uh, yes, but there's some statistical expectation of whether it gets re reported and it depends on, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's so interesting because it's more than one inefficiency in there, right? There's a, yes. there's another inefficiency with why are the machines that are producing the, the, the thing, whatever it is, creating this defect? That also needs to be fixed. And if you don't Correct. know, yeah. you know, yeah. or the longer you don't know that, the longer so it gets usually long. or there's some yield or whatnot yeah. yes exactly mm -hmm. and then we for example we have other customers not this one other customers that i were under nda and i can't talk about but i cannot talk about that is but i can at least in generalities you know they have you know they're contract manufacturers so their customers are like big household names that we would all recognize here right and they have exacting standards that they need to meet in terms of the quality of their output, right? And then so if their quality doesn't isn't up to snuff for whatever reason, then then they have issues, right? right? And then so there's this entire like value chain of quality all throughout, you know, from raw material all the way out to the end consumer. Yeah. Depending on the industry, it may or may not even exist really, or it might be informal. So before you guys showed up at this company to help them implement there were a bunch of people doing this right a sea a sea of people a sea yeah. just hundreds a sea. probably okay a sea Th of people th thousands, thousands yeah. of people yes. doing this job so uh, i'm curious how did executives who were thinking about this as a potential solution think about the workforce that they they already had and then how did how did that workforce once this process got underway how I assume it didn't all happen at once. There, there had to be a right. phase in of some sort. How, how did the right. workers respond to the implementation of the technology? 
there are two dynamics going on here. So for a lot of these sorts of, of jobs, these heavily manual labor jobs, I mean, they're not careers. Usually many of these employers rely on temporary labor and, and a lot of them are quite grueling. And then, so yeah. they'll have something like on the order of 120% turnover or maybe even worse than that. So like three month tenure, and then it's just so grueling people drop out. Yeah. Yeah. And then so we're effectively what we're doing is we're just not dropping out. The machine is doing the work. Um, and then for those that are, are like longer tenure or what, or whatnot, what we've seen is that they've, they're sort of like rising to a different level in terms of like overseeing the machines or engaging in, in a, like what I, I call higher leverage activity, mm -hmm. something that takes better advantage of, you know, our human troubleshooting and, and creativity and that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, so that's more of, that's, I think the most common scenario that we've seen as, as we've done this kind of thing. Right. Okay. So then you get into the cost benefit analysis of what this does for a business. So you've already pointed out that you're saving on, you know, mistakes or information not getting transmitted and, you know, customer problems at the other end. And I mean, all you've, you're, you're eliminating or reducing significantly a whole bunch of those things. Where does the, how does this work financially for the business? Where do they recoup most of their costs associated with yeah. Putting, putting the technology in. Yeah, it depends on, this is a reasonably complex problem because it depends on a number of things. It depends on the use case itself. I'll just lay out the table as it were mm -hmm. and then we can go into details. It depends on the use case itself. It depends on the region, uh, the like the cost of the labor that they have, the value of the product, what is the yield of their process, as well as upstream process considerations like how lumpy it is or these kinds of things. And so, the, the, the most direct and obvious value that they get is, is in quote unquote labor replacement, right? They're not having to go out and find somebody to do that job, but except in the cases where the, the labor force is, and this is increasingly more now because of people are just not going into these jobs. And so they're having a hard time staffing. But when we first started the company, it was more, you know, there could be staffing, but there was a lot of turnover. Right. So. So th there tends to be, you know, the want some savings there. I mean, I I'm just going through the like, yeah, yeah, different yeah. kinds of value we bring, yeah. right? Um, so you've got, then, a, you've got a chunk in substitution. Yeah, uh, a chunk in but... substitution. You've got a chunk in maybe more consistent output, right? And so that makes the CFO happy because they know, you know, it's more predictable there. And then so that, that reduced risk on their end, that reduced uncertainty on their end is worth something. Mm -hmm. Anytime you reduce certain uh, uncertain, anytime you increase certainty for someone, that's usually you know, right? You, it, somebody pays for that, right? It, it wouldn't be uncertainty <laughs> if it weren't costing you something. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so there's outside of things, and then there's depending on the customer. Sometimes we actually will improve their throughput on an absolute basis. So what does that depend on? Maybe they've got excess capacity upstream, and then so they're limited downstream, depending on where we're engaging, or maybe mm -hmm. we're upstream and they have some some choke point or maybe they have excess capacity downstream. So maybe depending on where we're engaging, we may be freeing up a choke point that allows the, allows the customer to, to, to basically sell more product. So do you do you know, that it, analysis for them? Do you look at their whole business yes. process? And, okay. Yes, yes. So you look at the whole business process and you say, we think we could make a difference here and here or over there or- Correct. Yeah, the usual engagement is actually, hey, we want, some robots for labor replacement. And then we'll be like, well, what's, 
it's like a doctor, you know, somebody goes to the doctor and they're like, well, I have this ache here. And the doctor's, well, let's like look at the whole system together because it may yeah. turn out that you're, something else is wrong and it's a secondary effect. Yeah. And so that's basically what we do. And then essentially come up with, you know, a value proposition of like, hey, look, Mr. Customer, we can, looking at all this, or a combination of these ways that we can help you, we can increase your margins by, you know, 10% or something, whatever, mm -hmm. right? And so, and we'll, you know, come up with some negotiation around like what we charge them. Obviously, they always end up ahead at, at the end of the day. That's how a deal gets done. Right. But, uh, yeah. Right. What What's the per unit cost installed for one of these? I know that probably varies a lot for depending on what the what the company is, what they're doing, all that. But I'm yeah, sure, like, and then how long does it take companies to recoup their investment? Yes. So I guess I'll maybe pivot this a little bit. And so we pioneered a concept known as robots as a service or RAS. And so that basically means we internalize the capex side of things, and we promise an outcome, i.e., a, a service outcome. And that actually is a little bit different from like, I guess, the traditional way of doing things in a couple of ways. A, you ask, what, when do they recoup their costs? The answer is immediately because you've, you've just done the ROI there. And so from day one, they're recouping that cost or they're already ahead, if you will. And, and B, the other thing that that way of interacting with the customer does is I liken it to like, if you go buy a used car, right? If you go to a used car dealer, the m minute you leave the shop, all the problems are your problems mm -hmm. kind of a thing, right? That is not the case with, with RAS. We're, we're now a part. Yeah. Uh, I would even say when you lease a car, the problems are still yours. You uh, need okay. to go get to the oil change. If you blow out a tire, you need to get that fixed, right? It's a little bit different. It's, I mean, we're borrowing from like the software as a service concept of like mm -hmm. providing an outcome or providing a service. And so we're, we're providing to Mr. Customer, hey, we promise we will do these things, these key performance indicators with your process and we're gonna make it happen. So it's a way of almost like you hire an accountant to just make your books get sorted out and be right with the tax man. You hire Rios to make sure certain aspects of your process just work and you can focus as a business on the thing that you care about, what the value that you bring, you know, to the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Wow. You think this is a, it is, you think this is currently a trillion dollar market or will be a trillion dollar market? Uh, so based circa 2018, which is when we founded the, the company, McKinsey, I think the year before had done a report, looked at all the manual repetitive tasks throughout the economy in mm -hmm. aggregate. So it's not just manufacturing or e-commerce, it's, it's everything, right? Agriculture, people who are like, you know, cleaning the dishes in the, in the back of restaurant, you know, everything that's manual that doesn't require like higher order thinking. And that, that economy in toto is 1 trillion per year in North America. Mm. You have to build these robots. Correct. And so you've got a or more than one, I don't know, manufacturing facilities where you're building these robots. And Correct. I'm curious, do you use your own technology in your own manufacturing? Yes. Uh, uh, when, when we're doing? Yeah. Uh, yes and no. Uh, okay. It depends on where and depends on what we're doing. 
So we don't yet have work cells building work cells. Yeah. Uh, if that's what you're asking. Um, <laughs> I'm getting very meta on you here, but I'm just curious that, as to that, that is a long-term Rios vision is to have work cells building work cells. We're just, we don't have those resources yet. We're not there yet. One day. So I, I think right now, like the best way I describe like how we do our manufacturing is you can kind of, so the way like, I'll go back to more traditional automation example, car manufacturers, right? Like car manufacturer doesn't make every part internally. They have a number of subcontractors who build who, who build their parts. And then they kind of, they're all shipped to a, a centralized location where modules are, are integrated with whatever customizations are needed for, you know, that given line. We pursue a similar methodology where we interact with a number of contract manufacturers. And then we, we do a blend between building our own work cells internally, as well as uh, integrating modules. The, the meta part is our, our software stack is actually quite generalizable. And then, so we actually will actively use our software stack as we um, spin up various, we have a, basically what, are called, what we call internally like research and development work cells. So if we are interacting with a customer that has a use case that we've never seen before and we need a, what we call de-risk a portion of it, you know, i.e. Let's make sure that we can handle this particular good that we've never seen before at rates, you know, consistent with our product. We'll, uh, we'll do that very quickly sort of in parallel with the production work cell being built up so that effectively there's like two, two lanes and then they merge. The, the CM final production unit gets built up, all the software gets downloaded, there's final integration and testing, and then it's, you know, off to the customer. So how, uh, and I don't want you to reveal any proprietary business information, but I'm curious, how many of these units are you installing on average per year? Yeah, I don't want to give you absolute numbers. Yeah. And so what I'll say is, is our turnaround time, we'll put it that way, our turnaround time, depending on the use case. So if it's, so I mentioned the end of line pack before, if it's like an end of line pack use case, so it's something that we, we do very frequently, it can be a matter of weeks The act, on our end. So actually the the longer part of the engagement tends to be working with the customer to understand their key performance indicators, i.e. what actually needs to be done, understanding their process and ironing out all those details. And then we can build the system quite quickly. If it's a completely new use case that we haven't seen before, and we'll do that for certain customers, effectively, if the total size of the opportunity is large enough, you know, we'll do a clean sheet design for a new customer in basically four months, it'll be deployed depending on the, the complexity. So we've currently got about a million open manufacturing sector jobs in the United States and really no prospect for filling those unless, you know, a bunch of people who left the workforce come back and economic conditions change all the time. Of course, we could have a recession next year. A lot of people are betting that we will. Will that certainly won't stop this process. Do you, uh, do you think this is a, you know, sort of just uh, a, an idea whose time has come and it's just going to roll forward yeah. almost regardless of? Yes. Of yeah. <laughs> Basically, yes. Yeah. I, you can you can look at all the data of, you know, trends of how the workforce is changing. I, I mean, I think maybe if we step back again, go a little bit more meta, mm -hmm. as, as the human condition improves, people are less likely going to want to go to grueling jobs. They want to go to more fulfilling jobs. And so there's a, as society improves, there's going to be a secular demographic trend away from these kind of jobs. I mean, 
We don't have people washing clothes all day by hand anymore, right? Right. That's that's yeah. why we have a million open jobs. I mean, I think that if it were attractive, either financially or otherwise, people would be, you know, would be jumping on them. Yeah. yeah. Yep, I agree. Yeah. The only other real alternative there is to sort of turn on the immigration spigot and get a bunch of, you know, people who for whom this looks like a good job. And that's not happening, I don't think, either. So very interesting. So what do you make of just sort of, I mean, there's a lot of concern, obviously, driven mostly by Hollywood and other fictional representations of sort of the end of human labor uh, caused by robotics. Like Wally or something? (laughs) Like Wally or just, you know, uh, there's a... there's very much a a camp of catastrophists around yeah. uh, robotics, artificial intelligence. You know, just in terms of the availability of work. What do you, what do you, have you thought about that issue? Yeah, uh, we we talk about this. Well, not in the, those exact frames, but you yeah. know, this idea of increasing automation. I think if, for example, we were to flip a switch and automate, you know, the entire economy you know, one day to the next, I think there would be massive social dislocations. So I think it's a kind of a how, what is the rate at which this titrates into the economy, right? If we're not so much displacing jobs, but either enhancing workers or filling jobs that no one wants, i.e., and by the way, this is where the inflation is coming from, right? I mean, I we, we we're watching and talking with customers that are basically they're upstream of the inflation because they can't get workers. So they're having to charge their prices just to be able to, uh, excuse me, raise their prices to be able to get by. So I think if the rate is, it continues to be what it is. I I'm not super concerned about that just as, you know, you know, generational changes occur. Yeah. I guess that's my my hopeful answer. Your company, what Rios is doing companies like Rios is increasing the rate of titration, right? I mean, you are making it possible for companies that, you know, don't want to invest $120,000 in a robot, but will do this robot for hire thing. Yeah. So it, yeah, I, we are, I agree with you. We are increasing that rate, but I still think that the demand is just so much higher that it, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh-huh. I mean, to put it in perspective, right? Like Fang, you know, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, each is about a trillion dollar company, right? Like their collective revenues together are I think on the order or slightly less than this one trillion a year that I was talking about in McKinsey. Like if you look at their annual revenues, so just the the, the absolute enormity of this market is so huge that it's just going to take time to you know to to fill it over. Do you look at the overseas markets very much? Um, we do, we do. And are, where is the U.S. relative to China or Europe in terms of this this approach? Uh, I mean, I think Europe leads on automation. So Europe and Japan really lead on automation and always have. China wants to catch up. They are working. I mean, I think a good fraction of robotic sales in the yeah, last couple of years have been going to China. So mm-hmm. I, I would say that they are somewhat, that, that they want to catch up. They're doing what they can to catch up. And it's it's the same thing everywhere, right? I mean, I think all over the, humans have a common like need to like do things that are interesting and like be fulfilled and you know, mindlessly moving objects eight hours a day right. and the stress, I mean, that's not, yeah. So I think that's just going to continue globally. Well, that's on one yeah. end of the spectrum. And then on, you're on the other end of the spectrum. You want to do interesting things. And so you're always trying to figure out how to do it 
okay. better, faster, smarter. That's a good segue to my last question, which is where do you see all of this going for your company in terms of you know, what, what do you see kind of over the horizon that might be of interest to people who are thinking about, you know, robots in American society and in, in our economy? If you think about the way the economy works, like what, what the normal consumer sees, you know, when you go to the retail big box store, or get coffee or whatever, that's like literally the tip. It's the, t- it's figuratively the tip of the iceberg, you know, in order for, you to get a pen or a cup or something. There's this entire supply chain that supports it, which is yeah, it's, gigantic. It, who made the pencil? You know, who I, made the, it's a classic. Who made the pencil? And then yeah. so I think over time, that entire part underneath the iceberg will be the part that will be automated because we people we crave we crave um, interpersonal interaction service. We're, we're very social creatures, right? And so while like on its face, it's like oh, let's automate this like you know, uh, coffee providers. People actually like talking with people, waiters and waitresses, or like, you know, like trying things, you know, I I think really the real trend is going to be underneath that vast portion of the economy where no one's, you know, no one wants to interact or with the, with that, you know, it's like how the sausage is made, right? It's, it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a job or whatever, but it's, you know, to the extent that we can automate that so people can focus on the interesting creative stuff, the better. So I think that's really where, where it's going to go. I kind of go back and forth on that because I I know that in my own life, there's a lot of times that I'm happy to skip over the human interface, right? If I don't have to, (laughs) I I don't need to go to a bank and talk to a person. That, that is, that is true. That is true. Like uh, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of cognitive load involved in that kind of interaction. If you're doing a, a whole bunch of it, now I agree that yeah. there are certain things like going to a restaurant. I'm not quite sure that I, you know, really want a robot bringing my food to the table. Yeah, you know, that, I think that, it's that, like how how transactional and how personal is the yeah, experience. And yeah. I think maybe we'll see like new markets that are emphasizing that personal in different mm-hmm. ways come up. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of the direct to consumer. At, stuff is is kind of in that vein as well yeah um i don't know we'll see yeah i I think i think you're right about human nature i mean i think that we we crave we you know depend upon in many ways that kind of interaction a lot casual interaction a lot more than we think we do Um, yeah well and i think covid was an an excellent example of that if you look in the mental health space you know the rate at which people were experiencing depression and other mental issues during the isolation of COVID, it just skyrocketed up. Yeah. Um, and we're living with it every day now. I mean, the, the, the yeah. after effects of all of that. Well, Clinton, thank you so much for spending all this time with us. And really congratulations to you and your entire team for this amazing work you're doing. I hope it's satisfying for you, you know, like- Oh, it's fun. Yeah. Satisfying and fun. That's great. That's great. Well, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Yeah, thank you, Brent. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.